pray for your hand of protection upon them. I pray that you would stop the loss of life. And even though we are all sinners, including the Jews, I, I still pray for your special dispensation upon them, that you would keep their spirits up, that you would provide for them sanctuary in their hearts because you bring the comfort in their hearts. I pray that you would give the leaders in that country and around the world wisdom and help them to understand and adhere to truth. I pray that we would not take these events in our country and world lightly. I pray that we would have our eyes wide open and be able to judge correctly and justly. I pray that you would be with us as we go through what is happening again and Father, I, I pray that we would have tremendous discernment in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. I might get to Acts today. Uh, it's, there's a few verses I might get to, but there's so much happening, so much that has happened in a week. I felt that I needed to touch on this because there are things that are, again, relevant to Scripture that are taking place over there. Now, I have not been one to give messages full of bubbles, flowers, and unicorns. And so when I'm giving you information, uh, some of it may be difficult. I'm not going to show you some of the videos that are just heart-wrenching of the death and the mayhem. I'm not going to do that. You can see all of those for yourself, like I said, with Amir Safadi uh, on Telegram, if you want to see those. And even some of those are so horrendous that he had to blur out uh, some of the images that were on there. So as we go through this, I, I just want to look at it in a sober manner. This is turning into a global event. This is not simply Hamas and Israel with United States on the side. There have been over 3,600 lives lost, 2,000 plus Hamas terrorists were killed inside the land of Israel, and they're still hunting down a few more. Rockets are now being fired from southern Lebanon. Lebanon has entered the conflict. West Galilee has been warned uh, to prepare to go into uh, bunkers to avoid what is going on, and it is affecting not just the people, the Jews in Israel, but it is affecting the Jews around the world. Now, I want to show you a video. In this video, it's 49 seconds. It is of the University of Washington. And there is a um, given approval of demonstration that's pro-Palestinian. And there are three Jewish girls talking to somebody who is in authority. Some of it is a little hard to hear, but you can certainly distinctly hear what specifically one of these girls is saying. So if you could play that, Daryl. I'm 
this isn't about what happened on the weekend. Why can't they just go up there? So you could tell that that girl, she's sobbing. And this is in the United States. This is at the University of Washington. And remember, if you tolerate evil, it will dominate. And so if we allow these things to happen, and of course the universities are supposed to be bastions of leftism, and they are, and that's what's being promulgated out there. And maybe you heard, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, about Harvard and how they came out for the Palestinians, and now they're retracting everything they had to say. But some of the people on the other side of the issue are doing just what the leftists do. I don't know if I agree with it, but they're using their same tactics, and the leftists are decrying it. And what they are doing is the people who have signed those documents, the teachers and the students at Harvard, they are driving around on a truck with pictures of the people and their addresses who said they are pro-Palestinian. They're doxing them is what it's called. And that's a a classic tactic of the left for anybody who's on the right. Now it's being used against the left and the the left is screaming bloody murder, so to speak, using that phrase intentionally. It's like they don't like a dose of their own medicine. And I'm I'm conflicted about that. I, I don't want anybody hurt. But at the same time, maybe it's a wake-up call, a call to reality. Now, with this, since it is going global, uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Andrew Sullivan said, We cannot rule out that Iran will choose to intervene directly with Hamas or in the Hamas war, as Iran's Revolutionary Guards are advancing pro-Iranian militia forces from the Deir Ez-Zor area towards the capital of Damascus, at the border with Israel. So Iran is moving some more proxy warriors into Damascus. Now, the question comes up, well, is this the Ezekiel 38 war that's being talked about? And what happens during the Ezekiel 38 war? If you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 17. Now, in Isaiah Chapter 17, the first words there, an oracle concerning Damascus. And it tells us what is going to be the future state of Damascus. So when you see Iran deciding to bring troops all the way into Damascus, which is about 40 miles north of Israel, and if Israel decides to respond, how will they respond And what about the city of Damascus? This is what God says is going to happen to Damascus. An oracle concerning Damascus, verse 1. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The city of Aor will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus, the remnant of Aram, will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In the day the glory of Jacob will fade, the fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain with his arms, and when a man gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches. Four or five on the fruitful bows or boughs. 
declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands. Then they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the, your, the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants, and it just continues to go on there. So this idea that Damascus is going to cease to exist. This is a prophecy, and it's in the future. Right now, Damascus is a bustling city. Bring Iran in there with its proxies. Israel decides to go in there, wipe it out just like Gaza. They want to flatten Gaza. That's what this scripture is talking about. So the world is erupting in pro-Muslim or anti-Israel demonstrations. (coughs) Excuse me. This last week... I saw videos of demonstrations in London, Vienna, Germany, New York, Auckland, New Zealand, South Africa, and Paris. And I know there are more. And the ones that I saw in London, there was somebody that was in like a fifth or sixth story building with a narrow street. And all the buildings were probably 10 stories tall. And they're taking a camera view of the street. It was shoulder to shoulder pro-Palestinian in London. And that's the way it is in the other countries as well. And there are conflicts and people are getting beat. In Germany, I saw the police pulling out the, the sticks, the metal sticks that extend out. And they were beating some of the protesters there. In London, there were Muslim wind, women in hijabs. And they were going to the walls on the buildings where there had been posted Jewish children that had been stolen and to pray for them or maybe you know just like 9-11 here and the the muslim women were ripping them off and yelling and tearing them up and throwing them on the ground and that is the mood throughout the world of the arabs when it comes to association with hamas they are backing it and of course the founder of hamas khalid mashal uh, he reportedly called for a global jihad on yesterday, or excuse me, Friday, October the 13th. And that's in the militarynews.com. And, and so there, it's this idea of Mordecai and Haman and what was perpetrated back then, like all throughout the land. Unfortunately, Xerxes, he, um, uh, Artaxerxes interceded with that and said the Jews can arm themselves and they can fight against this. And that's exactly what this was. A call. For, it, it, it's just like the evil Haman. This guy, Khalid Michelle, is just like Haman, calling for the destruction of the Jews. And then in Berlin, what's happening in Berlin, of all cities, is where the Jews live, people are going around spray painting on their Astar David so that the protesters will know which buildings Jews live in. And one young person that was writing about this said they had never been so afraid to live in the city they had grown up in. And then there's an article that the uh, refugees that are going to be coming out of Gaza, first of all, there is not one Muslim country that is opening up their doors to the refugees of Gaza. Now you have to ask yourself the question, 
Why? Why are they not opening their doors and taking them in? Well, before I get to that, you know the United States is calling for that now, that we bring in the Hamas refugees. Now, as Amir was reporting it, he said, the citizenry that got into the country did as much, if not more damage, as the terrorists who came through, those from the Gaza Strip. And so the entire population, it appears, and it'd be very few that wouldn't go along with the terrorists, they are coming in and they're just as angry as the militant terrorists that are coming through and they're willing to conduct any heinous crime whatsoever. And they are truly, whatever crime you can think of that can happen in war, it is happening to the nth degree. There's nothing more brutal um, that is taking place in this conflict than has ever taken place before. Now, there is a quote I want to give you, <clears throat> and the first time I saw it, um, I wept. Uh, and it, I saw it the first time, and I, I think I heard it before that, but I saw it the first time in Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the Holocaust memorial in Israel that you can go to. And trust me, when you go through that, I don't think anybody can go through there without almost weeping by the time you get out. And especially the last part where it has a memorial to the children and what they did to the children. But this is written by Bertolt Breck. And it is inspired by Emil Gustav Frederick Martin Nymoller. I think that's how you pronounce the name. And maybe you've heard this before. It says... First of all, they came to take the gypsies, and I was happy because they pilfered. Then they came to take the Jews, and I said nothing because they were unpleasant to me. Then they came to take the homosexuals, and I was relieved because they were annoying me. Then they came to take the communists, and I said nothing because I was not a communist. One day they came to take me, and there was nobody left to protest. And, and so with this, it's, they want to go after the Jews first, and you know they want to come after the American second. And I saw an Israeli journalist reporting from Israel saying, you know, it's in their charter, as I told you last week, that they want to kill all the Jews. But this woman said, as a journalist, we are the buffer from the rest of the world. This is where it begins. If they were ever to become successful in taking over Israel and eradicating the Jews, they would come for the United States next. They are already overpopulating Europe and even in our own country Dearborn Michigan is a center of Muslim activity they want to have their own Sharia law courts there are things that are going on there that would never be allowed under the Constitution of the United States and Sharia law is definitely in opposition to our founding documents but they're being allowed to exist and remember when um, Islam was called a religion of peace well, somebody changed that on the Babylon Bee, and they said, well, it's a religion of mostly peace, like mostly peaceful riots during the BLM riots that were taking place up in Oregon and Washington. And it's this idea that if you think that the Arabs who are in the Muslim community are for peace, you are mistaken. And then their argument comes up, well, it's only a small percentage of the Muslims who are not or excuse me, who are radicalized. Well, when you check the numbers and the numbers of 
total Muslims, it's still millions of Muslims who have been radicalized. And I've talked to Muslims who are not, but even the Muslims that I talked to, and I've given you this statistic before, it's between 76 and 79% of all Muslims would approve of installing Sharia law. Sharia law makes women nothing more than chattel and servants. It is misogynistic at its core, and they want to rule over everything, and everything that you think you have the freedom to do will virtually be wiped out. All you have to do is look at the Taliban that were in Afghanistan that we miserably failed on, and they have taken over again, and the women have been taken out of schools, and they are traded, and you can have child marriages Children, uh, women, girls as young as 11 are being married to 40 and 50 year old men. It's just a tragedy what this religion promotes. And God is going to deal with this eventually. But looking back on, on how this started, this conflict, how it, the inception, how it took place. And I told you last week that there were probably 30 breaches in the fence. Some people have fewer breaches. Some people have more breaches. We don't know exactly how many were there. But why such the long delay for the army to get in there? It was in some cases they said eight hours. Some others said that the terrorist had 14 hours in which to operate and no army showed up. And people were calling to try to get help. And they said, we cannot come in and help you. It's an area of conflict right now in the year. And it hadn't been secured and they could be killed coming in there. So how did this happen? Why did the army not respond quickly? And why did it take so many hours? And why so much loss of life? Why, why did this happen? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons. I think I have seven here. According to Amir, Amir Sarfati, he said that China and Russia got involved in hacking the security system along the fence between Gaza and Israel and took down all the sensors so if the fence was broken they wouldn't know it for a long period of time then as soon as the breaches happened and they broke through with bulldozers which they were not supposed to have in Gaza they immediately went for the camera towers so within minutes the camera towers were taken down so not only did they not have the electronic surveillance they didn't have the visual camera surveillance there as well so few people knew exactly what was taking place when phone calls finally started to be made something happened I think the evening before 10 or 11 o'clock at night that there was some unusual activity and phone calls were made but those phone calls didn't get to like Netanyahu until 6 o'clock or 6.30 the next morning when the assault actually started taking place. And so everybody started scrambling at that point. And then the third point, the first target of the terrorists, like I said, were not only the cameras, but the military outposts. Now those military outposts were manned sparsely because it was the end of the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot uh, or Booths, the Feast of Booths. And so you see all of these things piling up one upon one. And an, another thing that I think is really important that we have to pay attention to, especially in California. I thought when I was in Israel, I think the last time or the time before, 
you would see people walking around with rifles. You would see a, a group of children from a school, and there would be two armed citizens right behind them or in front of them. And they had their guns ready to go. Military was on the walls. You saw guns everywhere. You'd see people waiting at the bus stops, and they had their magazine clips to their side, and they had their gun right there, and they were reading a book or a phone, whatever it was they were looking at. And you saw guns everywhere, literally out in the open. I did not know that they had passed a lot of laws where virtually no one owns a gun in Israel. They have taken them out of the hands of the people because the politicians fear the people. What's happening in California? 11% tax on ammo. You have to pay a fee to buy more ammo. You have to go through a background check and wait 10 days to get any type of arm that is there. But they took all these arms away from the Israelis, and as a result, there was a slaughter of people that were there. They were unable to protect themselves against an invading army. So if you want to make sure that you take over a nation, get rid of the guns. And the people that are being greatly affected by this are the law-abiding citizens. It's not the criminals. The criminals will end up getting in the guns. Now, I believe in the Bible. I also believe in the Constitution of the United States and the Second Amendment, which is there. And I believe that's the highest law of the land. We're supposed to stand up for the laws that are there, especially if they are used to protect the people. And the government institutes that, and it's only for the purposes of peace. That's the idea of a just war as well. A just war means you have a government that declares it. An individual cannot declare it. It has to be to save people, and the outcome needs to be always for peace. That's what the Constitution represents. That is not what Israel has. And as a result of the politicians saying you can't have these arms, they were slaughtered. What has happened as a result of that? Israel Minister of National Security Ithamar ben Gvir announced Sunday in Hebrew an emergency declaration that will allow as many citizens as possible to arm themselves. Currently, there are a mere 1.5% of the civilian population that has a license to own a gun. So they realize their mistake. They're saying, okay, let's get the guns to the people. I also heard a, a report, I think it was on the radio, that they're calling for <clears throat> bulletproof vests as well for their citizens. Well, good, but it's a little late. And it, this has been declared an intelligence fiasco nightmare mistake of the highest order, that they did not see this coming. So they attacked during the feast, the end of the feast, the Feast of Sukkoth or Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the military outposts were lightly staffed as a result of that. Now, I'm, I'm not sure how much of an impact this had, but I'm sure it did have an impact. I was listening to Ben Shapiro, if you know who Ben Shapiro is. He is uh, the main podcaster of The Daily Wire. Uh, he was in California. He moved to Florida, and he was speaking about this attack. And his opening statements about it were a little troubling to me because he said that this attack started happening during a Sabbath. He said the Sabbath in the United States goes for two days and Israel goes for one day, which would have meant the Saturday that the attack happened. That was the end of the Sabbath and they had to wait until Saturday night before they could be off the observance of the Sabbath. But in the United States, it's Sunday night that they had to wait. 
As a result of the misinterpretation of scripture, Jews believe that you cannot use a cell phone during the Sabbath. They believe you cannot watch television. They believe you cannot push a button in an elevator. They believe you cannot turn on a stove. But they try to get around it by making elevators automatic up and down. You can have somebody around you that's a Gentile that can use a power tool or they can turn on a phone. But they are not allowed to do so. And Ben Shapiro said, because of the law. There is nowhere in the law of Moses that you will find You cannot use something like that. Even Jesus condemned the Jews because they added to the scripture of the things that could and could not happen on the Sabbath. And he told the Jews, if you have an animal that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not go down and pick that animal up and get it out of the Sabbath? Of course you will. Because, you know, it's, it's like humanitarian at the very least. Well, they have come up with all these rules and regulations of things you cannot do on the Sabbath. They have added to the scriptures. There's a problem with not keeping all of the scripture. And there's a problem with adding to the scripture. And because of that, the communication in Israel was greatly dampened. The people would not be able to get information as to what was going on. The people in the south that were being attacked, they would not be able to talk to the people in the north because the people in the north would not have had their cell phones on, their televisions on, no electricity whatsoever, unless it came on automatically. And that's another thing they do in the houses is the Sabbath lights in the house. They come on at a certain time and they go off at a certain time. And the elevators go up and down automatically. Just all that stuff. Because they think they're pleasing God by keeping this tradition and Jesus again condemned the people, the Jews because they put their tradition higher than the law remember what Corbin is Corbin is somebody who is a Jew that said I cannot help my parents because I have dedicated this money to the temple therefore I must give it to the temple because that is the higher good and Jesus said ain't no way true highly technical phrase there it's this idea that you think you don't have to take care of your parents he said take care of your parents before you give the money to the temple and Jesus condemned them left and right called them a brood of vipers because they were adding to God's law and if they were to simply follow God's laws and traditions that he had set up everything would be fine there wouldn't have been this problem when Jesus showed up of them having extra commandments hundreds of commandments that they had to follow and as a result of that people died this time because they weren't using cell phones because they believed that's pleasing to God I pray that we do not add to the scripture. And there are denominations that do. You know, you must dress a particular way. Uh, If you don't come to church for three Sundays in a row, you can't receive communion. You know, we, we put these rules, not here, by the way. We put these rules on people and we command that they follow them. We put yokes on their necks. And even Paul said, you know... Everything is available for uh, me to perform. Everything that is not sin. How did he say it? He said, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is expedient. 
So he, he could do whatever he wanted to. He didn't have to observe the Sabbath and the festivals, but he could if he wanted to. But not everything is expedient. Sometimes it wouldn't be expedient for him as a Jew not to observe one of the festivals for the sake of others, for the sake of those whose faith is weak. So I think this is a warning to us. Do not add to the scripture and do not take away from the scripture. It is clearly spelled out in at least four places in Ecclesiastes 12:11, Proverbs chapter 30 verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 and Revelation chapter 22 verse 18. All of those places in the scripture said do not add and do not take away from the scriptures. And then sixth, my sixth point here, how is it that the intelligence agencies didn't know? Well, there was sparse information. Some of the people, like I said, that found out the information the previous night, Friday night, they made phone calls, but because it was the Sabbath, those phone calls weren't completed until the next morning. They thought maybe this is just a, a routine exercise that the Hamas terrorists are carrying out. Turned out not to be the case. But what about us? We have the probably the best intelligence agency throughout the world and we missed it how did we miss it well there's this guy that was being interviewed his name is Kosh Patel Uh, maybe you've heard of him and this is what he says the national intelligence priorities framework called the NIPF is the bulwark of our national security efforts what is the NIPF simply defined Amongst a multi-tiered threat analysis, each White House is charged with the duty of prioritizing the greatest threats to the United States and our allies. In the Trump administration, this was simple. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and foreign terrorist organizations were all top priorities. Each year, the White House creates a new rack and stack within the NIPF. For example, during Biden's first year, climate change was the top priority. His DOD's first CONOP, Concept of Operation, the mandate that moves the DOD's rudder, was on climate change, not terrorists, not the CCP, not Iran, not the cartels like we did in Trump's term, but the weather. So we were not listening or focusing on terrorism as a country, we were worried about clouds and water. That's another reason why this was missed. We are culpable in this because of political chicanery. Now, the question, as I alluded to before, has arisen with the possibility of the battle prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. I think the answer right now is, is pretty straightforward. This is not the battle. Could it be the battle? Could it graduate into the battle? Yes, it could. Especially if we see Damascus taken out, Iran gets in, Russia has come out. You see what they did with the UN? They wanted to call on Israel to de-escalate and they want to have a UN vote and say how evil Israel is and they're the ones that are responsible for this. And so... Iran and Russia are both 
saber rattling, so to speak, with white flags on them, but they have a saber underneath, and they're coming in. And by the way, uh, Russia is in Syria and in Lebanon, and we have some forces up in the region as well. And you can see them just coming over. And where does it say they come from? They come from the north. And Syria and Lebanon are in the north. So that's why we're watching this. We're saying, wow, Lord, is, is this the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 17 and Ezekiel chapter 38? We don't know yet. But could it be? Oh, yes, this could be. Could this just completely die down? Yes. Do you think Israel is going to pull back from flattening Gaza? No, they're not. <clears throat> I told Patty this. When this happened, I said, you watch. It's going to be a week or two, maybe three, and then the tide of the world is going to change. They're going to call on Israel to stand down, that enough damage has been done, and they're going to want to save Hamas and the terrorists that are there. Do you know where the leaders of the terrorists are hiding right now? They're underneath the hospital in Gaza. Why the hospital? Because they know that Israel and the United States will not bomb the hospital. Remember I told you last week that Israel uses missiles to protect children. Hamas uses children and the infirmed and the aged to protect their missiles. I, I also saw this, you know, the UNICEF and a few other organizations, you know, they give money to people like Hamas and they gave money for water pipes. Hamas dug up the water pipes, they cut the pipe and made them into missiles, thousands of missiles. And they would dig holes in the ground and they would shove the missiles down in the ground so they had thousands of areas that held these missiles made out of water pipes that we gave them and they're declaring they don't have any water they already were under a water siege they didn't have enough water to do what they were supposed to do and it's all because Hamas was stealing the pipes digging them up and making them into missiles and is the media reporting this you know it just depends on who you listen to and, and who are the individuals that you trust out there to give you this information. I would see man in the street interviews, one in Canada. And by the way, Canada, there are a lot of protest, protests up there. And this uh, interviewer was going back and forth with this woman and she was pro-Palestinian. She had a PLO headscarf on and he's asking her, well, what about the children that were beheaded and he gives her the mic and, she's, and she starts scolding him. She basically says, you stupid journalist, you need to do your studying. You know this isn't true. And of course, the videos are everywhere. But when the videos show up, what they say is those are deep fakes. Those are constructed to fool you. Another thing that they're doing is, you know, they, the Israelites, Israel, they said that they were going to open a path from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. They were going to call it a humanitarian corridor or a humanitarian road. And I saw a map that showed two of those where the people would have the ability to leave northern Gaza because Israel has declared over and over telling the people, get out, we're going to flatten this part of the country. <clears throat> and then what happened? Egypt closed 
their gate on the southern border of Gaza and the northern border of Egypt. They wouldn't let any of the Hamas people come through. But they did agree to let Americans get through. If you had an American passport, they agreed to let the Americans through. Guess who tried to stop it? Hamas. They would not let the people through. They were telling the people not to leave. They were telling the people, do not believe the propaganda. Do not get out of the city. Stay in the city, which would mean certain death for the people in the city. That's how evil Hamas is. And they want to take the opportunity to go through and take video of innocent people dying because they keep them there. These guys, and I don't use this term often, these guys are Nazis is who they are. And they're uh, this Islamic uh, revolution, the people that are out there, they are nothing short and just have built upon what Hitler did with the Nazi regime. And uh, communism is at its peak. Marxism, despots rising to power. All these people are evil. So with this, we, we see that the last point I made was Biden um, had the presidency focus on climate change rather than true intelligence and things that would happen around the world as far as being a threat. And with this, if, if you see that the battle is coming down from the north and it's Ezekiel 38, what do you know is close? The rapture. Because the rapture, and I told you last week, there's debate. Is the rapture before Ezekiel 38? Or is it after Ezekiel 38? There's debate, a little bit of leeway. But everyone agrees, who believes in the rapture, that it's somewhere around that moment that the rapture is going to take place. Now, we don't know the day or the hour, that's for sure. But we know the season that we're in. Jesus talked about that. And so... Just by review, so you understand this, I think most of you know it. The rapture verses, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and Isaiah chapter 26, verses 20 and 21. And if you go back up to verse 17 there, it talks about a woman and birth pangs. Where do we know about that? In the New Testament, the wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines, those are all birth pangs. So if you had to make just an objective assessment, where are we? And I checked this morning because I had a dream about this. Not that I'm a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I dreamed about a, a big earthquake. And so on the way to church, I go, was there an earthquake somewhere? Oh, yeah. I ran in Afghanistan, just had, again, big earthquakes. And I'm going... Okay, I'm just watching. No predictions. I'm just watching what's going on, where are the famines. You know, I'm just being aware of what's taking place. And an objective assessment would be, well, I think we're close. How close? I don't know how close. And if this dies down, we're not as close as I thought. But if it continues, we're closer than I thought. So, And that's the, how we have to look at this. Now, the rapture will begin, I believe, in what we teach here, before the tribulation begins. The rapture will happen in, another view is the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation. Another view is the rapture will happen 
at the beginning of the wrath of God, which is about five and a half years into the tribulation. And then another view, the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. And then there's the, no, no rapture at all. So those are the different views. I believe that the first one is the most biblically sound. And by the way, if, if you do some research on this and you go to Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, those addresses are given to the Jews. They are not given to the church. And you have to read it in that context. Jesus is saying, watch, look what's happening here. And he talks about the women having to flee Jerusalem, especially if they're pregnant and where they're going to go, which many believe is going to be Petra down in the south, which we would have gone to. And by the way, just as a side note, we haven't heard if Pilgrim has canceled yet. I'll let you know next week what's going on and how the refunds work on that. But anyhow, uh, when, it, when it comes to that time, th- Jesus was talking about the Jews, not about us. So you have to keep that in context. And of course, I hold to the dispensational view where you take a literal view of Scripture. You don't allegorize it. You don't install a bunch of metaphors into the text. You read it as a narrative as it is given. And Israel has a separate plan from the Christian church. And I think that's completely evident because Israel is a nation. And the people who did not believe that the rapture is going to happen or the millennial is going to happen, they did not believe that Israel is a focus of the end times prophecies which are given in Scripture. I think that's a no-brainer, kind of a slam dunk that you can walk away saying, yeah, God has a separate plan for the nation of Israel. Now, in case somebody gets confused about the rapture and the second coming, I have several differences between the two. I do have scriptures. I'm not going to give you all the scriptures on this. If you would like them, I can give them to you later. But the rapture being different from the second coming, the rapture, Jesus comes to earth in the clouds. The second coming, he comes to the Mount of Olives and puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. In the rapture, the saints are taken to heaven. In the second coming, the saints return to from heaven according to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 in the rapture Jesus removes the saints from the earth in the second coming angels remove the wicked from the earth in the rapture signs not necessary before the rapture that means we don't have anything that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back in the rapture in the second coming several signs are necessary before the second coming there has to be an apostasy. There has to be wars in Israel. Uh, the earth, what, one-third of the earth has to be killed. Or, or excuse me, I think it's two-thirds of the earth has to be killed. And one-third of the grass, one-third of the water, hailstones, 100 pounds, signs in the heavens. All of those things have to be fulfilled before the second coming. In the rapture, nothing has to be filled before or fulfilled before that. In the rapture, Jesus comes for his saints before the wrath of God comes. In the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints after the wrath of God has come. In the rapture, no man knows the day of the rapture. In the second coming, we know the day. It is in the book of Daniel. It has two numbers in there, 1,260 days, and another one has, I think, 40 days added to that. We know at the end of that time, and that's the last three and a half years, Jesus comes back. 
And he restores all things. And so if you see the abomination which makes desolate, if we are here for that, we know when he's coming back. Just hold out until those days transpire. But the rapture, we don't know when he's coming back. Unbelievers will not see Christ at the rapture. The second coming, who will see him? The whole earth will see him. The rapture is a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament. The second coming is revealed in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Now you can take all of those. So the rapture, it definitely has taken place. The scripture says so. You can remain solid in this particular belief. There's some disagreements as to the timing of that. But I will put my stake in the ground and say it's going to be before the tribulation period. But I'm not sure if it's before Ezekiel 38, in the middle of Ezekiel 38, or after Ezekiel 38. Somewhere in there. I believe, just my opinion, it's not scripture, I believe it's before. So that's why I'm watching. I have my PF flyers on, I'm ready to go. Hopefully you are as well. So, let's see, 12 minutes. Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Maybe I'm going to make it here. From review, last time we know that Paul was going to be brought before the Sanhedrin and we know that the commander called the Sanhedrin together and that Paul stood before him and he said to them, he looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. An unprovoked response from the high priest was that Paul be struck. So you remember that was a couple of weeks ago. And then Paul, being very ingenious, adroit, and cunning, he pitted the Sadducees against the Pharisees. And then Paul succumbs to discouragement, and he says, or God meets him in the night, verse 11, says, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you also testify me in Rome, must testify me in Rome. And Paul then goes on, this is the beginning of the story in verse 12, where he survives a plot against his life. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. What has taken place here? The Sanhedrin are saying, let's go kill this guy. Let's take him out. The leaders of the Jews are plotting an assassination. Could you imagine? Think of any leaders in the church across the United States or worldwide. Get them all together and they have a plot to kill somebody. They have a plot to kill somebody because they're not teaching what they think This particular person should teach. And he's probably some itinerant preacher that just goes around from church to church. That's what's happening. Do you think this violates the Old Testament? I mean, this is glaring. Let's just say this would be like uh, Bozo the Clown blemish on the front of your nose that is turned white in front of a bunch of people. Yes, this is a complete violation of... Of the scriptures. Now, I'm going to use this to launch into the ending here. These are 
evil leaders. Not just slightly bad. They were evil. And God is going to judge all 70 plus the chief priests that were there. All the leaders of the Jews will completely be condemned at the great white throne judgment. The people that are in Damascus are completely evil. The people who are the leaders, they're the ones that are causing the death and destruction. They are people in authority that are evil, just like these Sanhedrin individuals. And it is so difficult to see people supporting these leaders. When I watch the protests and I listen to the conversations and the arguments that are brought up, some speak quickly and give detailed explanation, but the words are so profuse, so verbose, that nobody would be capable of going back and dissecting their information and giving them a response. Have you seen those type of people? They they just speak so fast. They have so much information. And you think because they're, quote, so intelligent that they must be right. And because of their persuasive words, there are those who think them to be smart, but they're just evil. Now, Paul warns us against this type of rhetoric and bombast. You know, when somebody just talks and talks and talks and they don't stumble in their words whatsoever and they give false information out there and you just go, wow, how can you argue against that? You really can't because they're not willing to stop and be questioned on their information. But Paul said this about this idea of persuasive words. First Corinthians chapter two, verse four, he said his own message was preaching and were not with wise words or persuasive words words but with the demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on god's power so that he says there's going to be people that come in with these persuasive words able to make arguments and you're going to believe them just because of their prowess just because they're able to exercise acumen and cleverness in the way that they speak and so you go well you got to believe them they're so smart they have all this information we must judge people by their words and not by their acumen or cleverness now one day both the ignorant and the willfully ignorant and i separate those two will have a stark realization that they have been wrong have you ever been wrong on something and realize later oh i was so wrong about that now there are people who are just ignorant and i believe we have prepared our country for ignorance We're not teaching them to think critically, the students that are there. We are brainwashing them through the media, through the cell phones, through all the places they can go. And I told you last week, when I look at what the millennials are posting and the uh, iGen generation, it's all pro-Palestinian. And, you know, I want to start responding, but I would never end if I started responding to some of that stuff. But I wanted to be able to illustrate this how people will come to the stark reality that they have been so wrong and it's going to how can i say it? it's going to slap them in the face like a wet towel that somebody just slings at them and they're going to go oh i was so wrong so i was listening to this guy a little clip uh, this stand-up comedian and he tells this story now i don't know if this story was true or not but it's a good story And you'll see why at the end. So a woman was standing behind him as he got into line. It was either Walmart or a Target. And he was waiting to check out. And up from behind him comes this woman, taps him on the shoulder and says, 
I was waiting to check out. And so he looks at her, doesn't say anything, and he's ready to pull his card out and let her go through. But then she said, quote, how stupid are you? And for the next two minutes, while he's standing in line, this woman berates and belittles and embarrasses him. Just goes off. And he says, two minutes in a public store with lots of people around is a very, very long time. When she had finished, she asked him, do you have anything to say? And this is what he did. I'm sorry. Do you know what that is? It's a deaf person saying I'm sorry. This is S for sorry. The woman immediately was embarrassed and for about the next two minutes started explaining how sorry she was for what she had done, asking for his forgiveness. And after she let him go through, and so he's checking out all of his stuff, he gets to the end with the bags and the cart. She comes over and wants to give him a hug. So she leans in for the hug, and with his mouth, he goes right up to her ear and says, How stupid are you? She came to the stark realization she had been had and what would be the experience that she would walk away with that I'm justified in this, how stupid did I look? That is what is going to happen to the people who are ignorant and those who are willfully ignorant. They're going to be slapped upside the head with this reality. It's not what you think it is and the truth that you thought you were holding to is a lie. We want to make sure... We don't get caught up in that. I have three minutes. I want to close my second closing with this. My junior year in high school, I had this class, English literature. And the teacher that was in there, I, I remember it. There were some shenanigans going on in the class. The woman was about 50 years old. She had blonde hair. It was up in a bun behind her head. And she had her uh, teardrop glasses that she would look over, her reading glasses that had the neck chain with the little beads going on it. And every day, almost every day before class, and we had this thick English lit book, she would pull out another book of poetry, and she would read us poetry. And she would do so with the proper rhythm and timbre that you're supposed to use with poetry. And she would exaggerate just a little bit so that we would get into it. And, and as she dropped her glasses, she would look to get everybody's attention. Then she'd take a breath. And then she'd start reading. And I became one who appreciated good poetry. I, I, I like it if I, you know, read good poetry. And there's a couple of names I remember. And one of them was Henry Wadsworth uh, Longfellow. I remember that name. <clears throat> and so I decided that I, I was looking at Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel and how they need to trust in God to deliver them. And he is a rock, Scripture says, and he's like a lighthouse. And I found this poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The rocky ledge runs far into the sea and on its outer point some miles away, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. And, of course, he's referring to the nation of Israel 
coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, that God was in front of the people, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And the New Testament, it tells us that that light of God will never be vanquished. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the light shines in darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Israel will always exist. We will exist with them. They are a separate called people by God. He loves them just as much as he loves us and even all the people on the earth. And I want you to remember that no matter how dark things get on the global scale, whether the economy, the culture, wars, earthquakes, famines, natural disasters, that God is our rock. He is our lighthouse. He will never fail. And though there will be turmoil and though it will cost many lives, he will judge justly and will make everything new. So, as I close, the message is two weeks ago. Jesus told Paul in verse 11, take courage. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up Israel again. We pray for their protection, the peace of Jerusalem. We ask that you would show yourself mighty amongst the people in Israel. And we know that you are the one who will repay And hopefully, Lord, we are able to leave that with you, but I pray that you would give Israel strength to protect themselves against this existential threat. And Father, remind us to pray often, to lift them up, and for our own safety as well, Lord. Give us leaders who are in the vein of righteousness that do what is good and just. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.